Here we go. Neutron proton mass defect. Lyrical oxidation. You're irrelevant. Mass spectrograph. Your electron volt. Atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons. Gamma rays. Thermal cracking. Cyclotron. Any and every mic you earn. Trans uranium. If y'all was uranium. Molecule spontaneous combustion. Pow. Law of definite proportion game. Ink weight. I'm every element around. So I'm Janet Iwasa. Uh, I'm a research assistant professor at the University of Utah in the Department of Biochemistry. You are known for kind of mixing visuals with your research. So can you give us like a, a really quick description of what you do? So I usually say that I'm a molecular animator. Uh, so my background is in cell biology. I got a PhD in cell biology from UCSF. Um, What's UCF? UCS, oh, UC San Francisco. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, so I went to graduate school there and I got interested in animation while I was working on my degree. And so I, I've kind of carved out this uh, kind of unique career path where I'm focusing on using animation as a means to uh, visualize processes, like molecular processes that you know my colleagues um, and I was studying in graduate school. And we were right next door to a lab that studied these motor proteins, what are called motor proteins, these proteins that walk along microtubules, just kind of like the highway of the cell that like spans from like the nucleus to the edge of the cell. These and these proteins walk along them and kind of drag along these vesicles or whatever. Right. Um, and, and was this the one of the first animations you kind of like dealt with? I think I remember seeing something that looks like these motor proteins. Yeah. So what happened was that. Um, at the time, I was we were had joint group meetings, and so I was going to a lot of like Bayer Lab group meetings, and they were talking about kinesin, which is this protein. And you know, they had all these kind of typical scientific figures to show what kinesin looked like and what it did. And there were like you know circles and squares and triangles and lines connecting them. They looked kind of like like stick figures. Um, but anyway, after I saw this kinesin animation, I got really interested in thinking about how. Uh, to incorporate this into my own research and how to start creating animations by my on my own, mm-hmm. um, and so I found out that there was a class, you know, so at UCSF it's medical school. There are no art classes or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but at San Francisco State University, which was like several miles away, um, yeah, I could, where my cousin went. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so they had art art classes there, and it turned out that as a UCSF student. There was like some kind of exchange program where I could take classes at SFSU for free. And the class, you know, it, like most animation classes, it was really, you know, not a scientific class. We were like modeling. I think the one of the first projects was modeling a living room. We had like, I had modeled a sofa and yeah. a lamp and a well, table. Well, hard though. It is. Yeah. And it's good training. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, like I would do that and then I'd go back to lab and I'd I'd, uh, you know, try to figure out how to get molecules into this software and how to start moving those around. Um, but yeah, so that, that was basically the first steps, was really taking this class. And, and one of the things that I think was probably the biggest gift to my advisor, you know, he was, I, I was clearly enjoying it a lot. And he basically said, you know, like, if, if I wanted to keep doing animation, I could take every Friday for as long as I wanted to do animation. Um, and so that's what I did for, like, the rest of grad school was, like, every Friday I was doing animation. Wow. So 
you had taken multiple classes. Like, so I took more classes okay. after this. So okay, the good. class I took at SFSU was a software that's um, it was a software called Lightwave, okay. <laughs> um, and you know by the by the time I had finished grad school, I I I was realizing that it had a lot of limitations. Okay. Um, it wasn't a very commonly used software. Like, so if you went to Hollywood, the software that everyone uses in the studios. It's called Maya. It's considered the industry standard. Like, if you wanted to get a job, that's the software you learn. Okay. Um, and so I, I ended up doing um, a course. So as, a, as part of my postdoctoral training, as part of a, this kind of fellowship that I got, um, I went to Hollywood for three months to learn this software. What? Okay. <laughs> wait, wait. Let's back up. So you apply to this fo- fellowship. And sorry, listeners, we are at a restaurant. But so you do you apply to this fellowship that's like a somehow associated with like science and animation or like where did this fellowship come from? Right. So it wasn't an animation fellowship. Okay. Uh, so, you know, by the end of grad school, I was really trying to figure out how I could do animation as a postdoc. Because I, I think my goal was that I wanted to do this for my career and I wanted to stay in academia because getting outside of academia seems scary. Like, I just had no idea what that would You could have been making so much more money. Maybe so, but at least I knew what it meant to be in academia. So um, that was kind of my goal. Um, And also because I felt like this is what academics needed. Mm -hmm. Um, That, you know, this kind of tool, using being able to visualize what we do, seemed really important. Um, So anyway, so I was really focused on this. And, you know, I would have thesis committee meetings where, you know, they'd be like, well, you're, you know, you're going to be graduating in a year or two. Like, what are your plans? And I'd be like, I want to do animation. Yeah. And they would just be like, huh, well, good luck with that. You know, like they they just didn't have much advice because nobody had ever done that. Yeah. Um, It's not a common path. It's not common. Yeah. Yeah. They just didn't even, you know, they couldn't they couldn't tell me what to do. Um, But I was also telling my friends and. And, um, and different people about this idea. And one of the my friends who ended up going into a career development position, um, and she was already thinking about that, that direction in graduate school. Like, so what is career development? What do you mean? Different careers, how to train graduate students okay. um, and postdocs for for like kind of the diversity of careers now that people are going into. Okay. But she was already thinking about that. Um, so this is Cynthia Furman. Okay. And uh, so she actually, I guess her ears out for different opportunities as postdocs. Nice to have friends like that. Yeah. So she was the one who told me like, you know, there's this, there's this NSF fellowship. It's under chemistry, um, <laughs> but there's this NSF fellowship that is interested in creating new postdoctoral models that allow people to integrate kind of what they did in grad school with outreach. You know, and so it's called the Discovery Corps, and it was okay. a pilot. Um, so when I was looking at it, I think only maybe one one year or two years had been had started that fellowship. Okay, so it was brand almost brand. New. It was brand new. Yeah. Uh, not many people had had been in it, um, and so I basically I called the person who was running this, and I asked her, you know, like, would it be possible for me to do to do something focused on animation? as a postdoc and yeah. she was like absolutely oh, <laughs> you know wow. she was like extremely um warm and like very encouraging so your luck is very good i, I you know guess. like i feel like <laughs> like your story is like and then i approach this person and they're like great and it's, it's not you know not everyone has that experience right i didn't expect but i had a lot of 
dead ends prior to that, like where okay. I had looked at traditional postdoctoral fellowships and emailed them and asked them, like, can I do animation with that fit? And I either got no response okay. or just no. <laughs> you so know? basically, I mean, this story you're telling me is very, very short version of like, you're trying to go all these different avenues, trying yes. to get money in all these different ways. Just figure out how to do this. Because like, um, you really want to do animation. And I had no other plan. Like, this is all I wanted to <laughs> wow, do. Wow, you were like narrow-minded. You're like, I want to do this. Yes, this is yes. like, I'm passionate about I this. I had no alternative plan. I We were years out from graduating and my husband, so he was my boyfriend at the time, you know, I was like, well, I think I have to come up with a proposal and, and write something, but then I need we need to know where we're going so I can find an advisor. Yeah. And he's like, how about Boston? Because I'll be able to find something there. What does he do? So he is a neurobiologist. Okay. He was actually in the Vail lab when wow. I was there. So we were right next door to each other. And so when I was talking to Kathy Covert at the NSF, I said, well, so, you know, uh, my background is in biochemistry, cell biology. Um, but, you know, I know this is a chemistry program, so I'd like to meet some chemists who might kind of be interested in working with me on animation. Do you know anybody like that? In yeah. Boston. Yeah. And You're like, she, specifically in Boston. Yes. Yeah. And she's like, I will send you a list. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So she was amazing. She's still there? Yes. Wow. Yes. And so she sent me three people, um, and I emailed them all. I looked at their research. You just cold emailed them? Yes. Okay. I looked at all of the, I looked at their research and tried to imagine how animation might be able to help them communicate their research. Emailed them all, and only one of them responded. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. We're laughing, listeners, because it is a common scientific outcome. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Jack Shostak was the only one who responded, but his response was very favorable. Yeah. So he was. He's working on. He's at Mass General Hospital, also affiliated with Harvard Medical School. Ooh. And um, he studies the origins of life, the chemical origins of life. So basically, how did, how was biology born? Uh, you know, from chemistry, basically. Yeah. Um, how did the, you know, small molecules get together to form what would be like the earliest cells okay. on Earth? And um, he gets a lot of, there's a lot of interest in the public about how how the origins of life, what people think might have happened, mm -hmm. but not a lot of very good visuals. So like, what did these early cells actually look like? And there are a lot of people doing experiments to try and think about what's the most prebiotically plausible way that these cells may have formed, like membranes and, yeah. and molecules that had, had a, a way of encoding information and carrying out enzymatic functions. So that's kind of what the idea of the yeah. early cells. As you're, as you're like describing this, I'm trying to like visualize, I'm like, what would that look like? Yeah. So, so yeah. basically the yeah. earliest, you know, one version at least yeah. is a membrane, like a vesicle with an RNA inside it that's capable of both copying itself but basically just copying itself, but made out of RNA. So it's, it's, it's made out of like um, something that can encode information the same as DNA, but can also catalyze reaction. Um, so this is the basis of what people call the RNA world. So basically before there were proteins and DNA, there was just a cell with just RNA that could do both. Okay. Um, both the functions of DNA and proteins, but DNA and proteins are better at it. So, you know, that ended up kind of overtaking the RNA world. Okay. And there are probably steps before the RNA world, right. before these cells. There's something, but, you know, that's a little hazier.
helping visualize this primordial cell with just RNA inside and how that would interact with other cells in a community or just by itself or like what what are you working on at that point? So in the in the Shockstack lab at the time there were a lot of people doing experiments trying to understand the um, the sort of the characteristics of different aspects of this early cell. One part of the lab studied fatty acids. So these lipids that were thought to be maybe form the membranes of these early cells. So kind of less complicated than the sort of lipids that make up our cells. Anyway, so that I was a lot of the animations had to do with trying to just visualize what the lab experiments were doing. So how do how does, you know, if you add a bunch of small uh, groups of, of lipids called micelles to a mixture, how do they start forming vesicles, which is like a, a has a, a membrane of a different kind of characteristic than the micelle. Okay. Like more like a bubble. Okay. So things like that. So basically trying to visualize that. But um, the overall goal was also to do public outreach. To, to basically create animations that could explain the research to a broader audience. So, so they would serve a double purpose, a dual purpose. The researchers could use them to say, you know, this is what we think is going on in our experiment, basically their model. And then also, you know, to the public, this is how we think life, one step, yeah. that, that life whereby life may have evolved into having cells. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so in, and the end goal was to create this sort of um, uh, a set of animations that was used in the Museum of Science in Boston. So I, I worked on an exhibit um, called yeah, Exploring Origins. I, I read that. So how long did this exhibit go, and, like, what was your... I mean, you probably weren't there, like, pointing at stuff all the time, but, like, yeah. what, what what was the exhibit? What was it like? So that uh, exhibit, it was um, a touchscreen kiosk, and so I incorporated... So what year was it? It was 2008 when wow. it was released. Okay. Um, so I started... My, my postdoc was only two years, because it's... Chemistry postdocs apparently are, are very, I mean, for a biologist, that's incredibly short. I did a bunch of uh, presentations. They had this kind of a news desk at the museum where scientists <laughs> could come in and present things. I've or, seen like, that. People that at the museum. That's pretty standard. And, yeah. Like, yeah. So I would do these. I think I did it maybe every other week for the summer before I finished my postdoc. Okay. Um, I, I did presentations on the origins of life. And, and I think so you it, were there a lot by your exhibit. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And I also created this website, uh, which I call like this online exhibit. So it has all the animations. The that the narrations on the animations that on the website are a little bit more, you know, kind of more complex than the ones that we created for the museum. Okay. Um, and has kind of digs into the science a little bit more. I mean, because you, you, do you do you have probably links to things that they can reference and stuff within the website? Yes. So if, if yeah. things are more complex on the website, then they can kind of like figure out what that that complexity means. Yes. Right? Okay. Yeah. So I have like resources to learn more. Right. Um, yeah. So so that was basically the three components of that. Um, the kind of the outreach side of the project. This is 2008. This is when my daughter was born. So as you're doing all this, are you also like starting a family? And like that's like that seems very stressful. Yeah. So my <laughs> husband and I got married in 2008, and we had our first son in 2010. Okay. So, so that yeah. was after. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't. I didn't have a kid until I was a faculty member. Okay. For, for the benefit purposes. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. <laughs> I, I see how that happens. Um, so I'm. I'm reading up about you before I, I come to the interview. With you. <laughs> and you're. You're like known as this person who is really linking 
you know, cell biology to animation. Since you started doing that, is there now this like movement towards it? Are you oh, or are you still like the only person doing it? It's hard. It's hard to say. Like I feel like I um, I field a lot of questions via email, and like I chat with people, and I talk. I give a lot of talks about my career at various places. I've even written articles about yeah. my career path. Um, this is like almost ten years ago now. So you would think I've other... been doing this for like ten years. Yeah, or think... more because you because you when you were trying to get that postdoc, that was right. more than ten years ago. Yeah, so it's been a while. Yeah, there's so there's different paths one can take in this general field of visualizing science. Mm-hmm. There is um the more established path is one that's basically a master. You can get a master's degree in medical illustration. There are these programs. I think in this kind of the course that's run by the AMI, the Association for Medical Illustrators. Thank you. They, I think they teach you things like, uh, it's, it's kind of a fine arts sort of degree. Yeah. So a lot of people going into it are artists. Um, but they teach you the science, but they also teach you kind of like the business side of like, if you wanted to run your own freelance studio, like how do you do that? This seems very nice of them to, yeah. to do that. Oh, I think it's necessary. Yeah. Um, like, how do you charge people? Things, right. Things like that. But anyway, so I think that that kind of trains you to go into uh, illustration studios and a kind of a different career path than I ended up taking, partially because I come from within the academic sciences, the sciences and I think yeah. I just, you know, like, this is where I, I prefer to stay. Well, and, and that's, that's also, I, I would say, not knowing very much about fine arts education, but I would say, at least in the sciences, we're kind of expected to learn things on our own. You know, they're like, well, you'll figure it out. You know, like, there are resources, and, and you'll figure it out. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, I think that's how we're taught to teach, too, right? We're like, oh, yes. you know, you want to be a professor? You'll figure it out. Like, we're not given, like, teaching courses, and we don't have teaching certificates, and we don't have to take tests on, you know, methodology, you know, right. uh, pedagogy or anything like that, or curriculum creating. My other question was, so who kind of utilizes your skill then? So you have the skill of animation, but are you contacted by people, like, in Hollywood to, like, help you with that? Are you contacted by other people, other biologists? Like, what do you do now currently like what's your big what are your big projects now and like are some of them different from each other are they you know what's what's happening now with that skill i yeah i have several ongoing projects so you know the goal being a faculty member in a research department is really about becoming you know, kind of financially stable yes. um, and getting funded, which means getting funding. Right. Um, so writing grants and getting funding. Um, so I have several grant funded projects right now. Uh, the biggest one, um, and it's the biggest one, especially that's that focuses on animation, is called The Science of HIV. And it's basically, uh, the, the goal is to create an animation that shows the entire life cycle of HIV at a molecular scale. Wow. Um, and so this is a collaboration uh, with uh, what's called a P50 center. It's a big NIH-funded center that's based out of the University of Utah, chaired by my the chair of my department, Wes Sundquist. 
Um, and so the, the goal, of the, there's five P50 centers around the country. They're, I think, like $5 million a year grants. And they fund, each center has 10 or 15, 10 to 15 different PIs. And they're all studying the structural biology of HIV. So basically, what do the molecules that, you know, carry out different functions in the HIV life cycle, what do they look like? How do they interact with each other? Yeah, which is very important to understand. Yeah, it's like a very mechanistic understanding of, of what's happening. Um, and so this has been sort of a collaboration mainly with the P50 Center I'm associated with, but um, with a bunch of others too. Okay. Um, so that's one of the main goals that's, that's been really great to work on. Um, and so the hope is to release this sort of longer animation, kind of a fully fleshed version, uh, in the spring of next year. Um, so that's been a major one. I have a lot of smaller animation collaborations that have resulted in getting published in various, so kind of the animated model figure has been one of the things that I've been really interested in trying to do, especially now that we're kind of entering the digital era, era of publication. just thinking I had read something where you have this online free application and free software to um, so people can do animation on their own yeah so one of tell the me about that <laughs> real quick though before we talk about this um, online flipbook oh. I really think it's amazing what you're doing because you're actually helping people understand the science in a way that is very very much accessible when you're reading a textbook especially in biology at least you all have the pictures and stuff, and that's really awesome. But in physics, you know, we have less. But you, like you said, with you see an animation, that concept clicks in many, many people's minds. Probably more than I think traditional scientists would think. So, with your online flipbook, is there also an element of like citizen science or community science where people in the general public that aren't necessarily biologists can actually contribute to data. Is there a portion right. of that? But anyway, go ahead, continue talking about the flipbook. <laughs> so yeah, the flipbook project was born out of two major observations that I had made over the years with over like dozens of collaborations with researchers who are actually, you, you asked this before, but it's really most of the people I work with are in, in the academic biology, like molecular biology. So basically my idea is, you know, if you can see it by a microscope or by eye, yes. I don't animate it. You can see it. There's no Got reason. It. So like the reason to do molecular animation is because we can't see it. Right. Um, this is really about hypothesis exploration and development and being able to basically see something that we would never be able to see otherwise um, because of the scale at which these things are happening right. um, and the need to kind of take a lot of different types of data to create this basically the story of what we think is happening. Right, because you need to have the correct parameters. Like, you, you can't have this animation and be like, I have this hypothesis and I put it in, but if the parameters are wrong, then that's not what would happen, right? So you need to have all this data that goes into your animation yeah. to verify that that's happening, right? Yeah, it's not as so much as a, of a verification, so much as, you know, the way I think about it is that a biologist, a molecular biologist, has many lines of 
different types of research that feed into this idea of what's happening with this. So for any given protein, a researcher may have been studying this one protein, this one pathway for like decades, um, trying to understand like what it's doing inside the cell, what its main role is, who is it interacting with. And as a result of many lines of different experiments, they have a movie in their heads. Right. Of like what's, and some of that might be based on you know, raw data, and some of it may be conjectural because they haven't been able to think of an experiment to test something, okay. or it hasn't been tested for whatever reason. And so they have this movie playing in their head, which, you know, the same kind of data, another scientist in the lab would have a different movie playing in their heads, right. um, or they don't trust some of the data, you know, like whatever, for whatever reason. Um, but it's what the basis of, of which on which they're they're forming new experiments. They're thinking of new experiments, how to test this. Um, but if you can't even ever see that, you know, like how can you uh, move forward or yeah. or modify or even communicate? Yeah, like that's, to yeah. other people, like what you think is actually happening when you're sort of limited by the sort of the jargon and you know you're not really you're not showing all of the connections you know. So anyway, I, I, the idea is that. The understanding of biology, especially now, is very rich. Um, there's a lot of information that we have, but the type of visualizations we can create or, or have been created are usually very kind of data poor. Yeah. Um, and so it's a matter of trying to make those things match a little bit better. But anyway, so the two things that I had sort of observed over the years is that people want to create their own animations. and. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. One is that I think, you know, in my experience of working with people, the aha moments happen when people are able to really kind of think on their own. They're exploring things, they're kind of playing with things, and they realize like something's missing here. Something must be here that, that we don't, we haven't discovered yet. Um, so people can make those, those kinds of observations, but mostly when they're kind of sort of hands-on. They're being pretty hands-on right. about that, um, this process of creating an animation, this visualization. So, and the other thing that I noticed, so people want their own animations. They want to be able to do it themselves. And the right. software that I use, three months in Hollywood, <laughs> it took right. me to learn it. And it's like not a, you know, it's it's not something that's feasible. And I'm going to ask you about those three months after you're done with this. <laughs> okay. And, and also about cartoons. <laughs> yeah, and the second thing is that you know, I've made a lot of animations over the years, and people in the in the same field, like I said, everyone has a different hypothesis in their head of how something works. Especially the longer they've been in a field, the more different their ideas may be. Right. Um, so, you know, if I make one animation showing a molecular process, it's almost a guarantee that somebody else will see it and say, well, that's wrong. Uh, that doesn't match my mental model for X, Y, and Z reasons. Can I just take that animation and change it so it matches my mental model? Yeah. And the answer is typically no, because the software is so hard to use. Yeah, and it's taken like blood, sweat, and tears over the course of months or years right. to create this animation. It's usually just like a little bit of an IP issue just to give away stuff. Right. Um, so my idea for Flipbook was: can we overcome this by creating a software that's intuitive, that's easy to use, that lowers this barrier uh, to creating a molecular model, an animated molecular model, and then make people share them online right. so you have this way of like having a database and, and being able to share that so it's almost like i mean in astronomy there's a lot of python um you know, people are using python for plotting and and 
data processing. And there's a lot of online sharing of that and like, you know, code that you can just put up and share. So it's, it's kind of like that where you can have the animation code and you're kind of cutting and pasting somebody else's work to help your work and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, sort okay. of. Yeah. So, I mean, with animation... I don't know anything about animation. Yeah, so it's usually, there's something called, a, typically a scene file, which is kind of the raw information that you need to open the scene, the, an animation within a software, and then you can make changes to it. So when you have, when you, you can, once you have a scene file and you have an animation software, you can render it out to like a video. But the okay. video, you can't change. You can't right. edit that. That is like a static thing, can't be changed. So what you need is like the scene file to right. be able to edit it. So my idea was, you know, like say you're a biologist, you're studying some protein pathway, you know, protein A and protein B get together and they, they do something. Um, you know, I could look at that and I'd be like, well, you know, like I just discovered a protein C that is a part of this pathway. Can I just download your animation, your scene file and add right. my protein? And then you can kind of see how different people's hypotheses are different visually, mm -hmm. like kind of a visual map of how um, these ideas diverge and, and kind of like refine over time, um, getting closer to maybe a consensus model of how something works. That's, that's awesome. So, and, and you launched it in March, right? So this was launched actually in 2014. Oh, okay. The Flipbook project is actually, um, is aging a bit. Um, okay. And, and, you know, so one of the things that I found is that, you know, I'm not a software developer. So this was a grant that was funded by NSF. Right. And I hired software developers oh, to help me good. with it. Um, but since, you know, the, the, it was launched, we, you know, haven't been able to maintain it. Um, so the hope is to really uh, work together with another group to basically create a software that basically other groups may be able to maintain. It's, it was released yeah. as an open source right. software and, and kind of constitutively beta. Um, yeah. More like a test, like to figure out, yeah. is this something that the research, you know, researchers would be interested in? Yeah. Is it something that we can make some, some software that's actually intuitive that people can learn right. over the course of an hour rather than a, the course of months? Or maybe a week. <laughs> it is literally like, so yeah. the way Flipbook, the original version, our test for it was that we had an animation that we created, yeah. like protein A binding protein B, and we showed it to people students who had never touched animation software and then we showed them like a literally like probably a five or six minute tutorial on flipbook and asked them to recreate the animation you know the timing the protein yeah, yeah we told them what proteins they were and they were all able to do it in 10 minutes oh my god so it's pretty easy to use but i think right now i have to have the caveat that it it's not working in all os's because of the maintenance issue um but i think it was a good lesson um yeah. to figure out like what can work and the fact that people were really interested in having this kind of software Three months in Hollywood. Kind of, you're, so you're in San Francisco. You're so close to Pixar. 
right? And we visited Pixar for, as part of SFSU's like one of their field trips. Yeah. Okay. Did did anyone at Pixar, you know, hear about your work and maybe was like, oh, maybe this could help us, or or vice versa, where you heard something from Pixar and you're like, maybe I could help you? Did anything happen since you were so close? At when I was at UCSF, I'd say I was pretty inexperience with animation. Okay. I'd say no, not really. <laughs> um, but you got to go there and it was awesome. It was it was fun to see. Yeah. I think in the end in animation in general, if you're in a studio, you end up specializing a lot. So, you know, you're a modeler or you're a lighter or you're a rigger, you yeah. know, so you're you're really kind of only taking and actually the software all animation software, you can do all of these things, like all of these right. different jobs. Um, you know, so what I do uh, in in sort of the industry terms is called I'm I'm a generalist. I do everything. Wow. I do the lighting. I do the shading. I do the animation. That sounds very stressful. It, it's well, it's just one piece of software yeah. at the same time, right? So, okay. and I kind of like that. Like you're in control of the entire story. Right. You're not being told like, okay, now you just you know you just got to make this mouth move at a, you know right. not to say not to overgeneralize about right. what animators do, but I, I like having that amount of like kind of artistic control over right. that. Studios like Pixar seem like, yeah, it would be really fun to make movies like that. But It's like a machine though, right? Like you were saying, like you have you have so many people in all these different portions that together create something gigantic. Right? Yeah. But when you were working in those three months, were you a generalist then too, or were you put into one specific Oh, so thing? I wasn't working. Okay. Uh, this was a course. Oh. Yeah. Oh, so wow. I went to Hollywood for to take a course in the software that I use now, which is called Maya. Got it. So it was like a 10-week crash course in this one piece of software, like 9 to 5 every day for 10 weeks. Yeah, and even then you're still just kind of scratching the surface yeah. um, of figuring out what the software can do. Uh so that's basically one of the reasons why I think it's not reasonable to expect, like a scientist right. who's working at the bench, to be able to just pick up the software and start making models. Like yeah. I don't think that's reasonable. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, did you did you get to experience anything in during that course? Because you're physically in Hollywood, right? And you're like in that culture and that environment. Was there anything that was surprising to you that happened, or what you learned about that industry that you didn't expect? I mean, it was a school, so I guess, you know, like, there was a limited amount of, uh, you know, like, a lot of the instructors came from different studios and could speak to having that kind of experience. Um, Were you the only scientist? I was the only scientist, and I was the only woman. Wow. Uh, so it was... Uh, so they might think that all scientists are women. <laughs> I think, you know, the people there were sort of entertained uh, by what I was doing because it was so sort of out there. Really? Um, Did you get a lot of awe, like, questions? You know, not really, but I think I asked a lot of odd questions. You know, because I'm trying to think of, you know, we're, we're like modeling robots and like explosions and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm doing everything that we're supposed to do for this class. But I'm thinking about, okay, how am I going to use this to animate a virus or, you right. know, a bunch of molecules floating around in a cell? I would um, be thinking, like, that would probably not blow up. And, yeah, yeah like, that right. wouldn't fall like that. Yeah, exactly. So I would ask questions, like, I think I was thinking about something about viruses. Um, and I, I would ask questions like, you know, say you had a soccer ball and you wanted to remove all of the faces, just kind of blow them up, and then you put them back together piece by piece, pentagons and hexagons, in order from the bottom up. 
how would you do that? Yeah. Um, and they'd be like, wow, that's really, that's really a strange question. That's yeah. really weird. But then they'd answer. They'd be yeah. like, okay, so there's this way or that way you yeah. could do that. So I think a lot of it was just thinking of ways like, okay, this is not really a real world scenario, but I can at least try to come up with something that sort yeah. of describes what I have to be able to do. Right. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things with molecular animation that people just... You know, like multiples, like you need thousands of molecules to create like a vesicle or something. And like, how do you control all of these things at once? I remember I'd seen one of the videos that you had of the PBS uh, video and you ta- you had talked about this idea of like Lord of the Rings, like the battle scenes uh-huh. had made you think about how, like all of these people are in the battle and they're interacting in some way that looks realistic. How do you do that with with molecules. So that's what we're working on with the Allen Institute is awesome. agent-based modeling. Yeah. Um, and basically, you know, yeah, so Lord of the Rings, there's a software called Massive um, that was used to animate the armies of orcs and elves and humans and whatever. Yeah. And so the idea is that... <laughs> and, like, and whatever. You know, all those... Molecules. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, orc, orc molecules. Orc molecules. Um, but anyway, you know, like when you think about it as a biologist, like proteins are doing the same thing. Right. Like based on their surroundings and how close they are to some other protein that they might bind to, they could have a different reaction and a different outcome. And really, when you're thinking about multiples, you're just throwing a lot of these things into one scene and seeing what kind of falls out of that. Right. Um, so yeah, so that's the idea for um, some of the things that we're working on at the Allen Institute is thinking about how we make proteins into agents to create simulations that are kind of more more intuitive to think about in biology. So not doing molecular dynamics kind of thing, like thinking about ev- where every atom is, um, but really thinking about proteins as agents being able to make decisions, having different states and moving between those different states based on what's around them. Which is very different from how the simulations are done now, is what you're saying? There are some simulations that are done that way. Um, So I think we're thinking a little bit more of a zoomed out view than some other uh, researchers are thinking about. So we're not thinking about the atomic level. Um, We're thinking more about how different proteins interact and different like like kinesin walking is one of the things that we're thinking about in terms of how to create a simulation of that, um, how it interacts with microtubules and like that kind of thing. Yeah, so I think that, and then, you know, uh, hopefully we can also build in some animation tools in there too. It, it all sounds really awesome. Um, when I was a, a child, um, I really loved animation and wanted to do that and science. That was always my dream, but I wasn't very good at art, so I just gave up. Plus, I mean, who does that? Who, <laughs> except for you now? <laughs> but I just think it's really, really awesome. I want to like end with two things. One, is there anything I didn't ask that you'd want to talk about? You can think about that while I ask mm-hmm. the second one. I always ask my guests about some amount of pop culture. So there's so much of your work that kind of does. Like, we were just talking about Lord of the Rings. We were just talking about all these things. Are there anything or any representations of biologists or cell biologists or anything in TV movie that is like super inaccurate or actually a show or TV show, a TV movie that actually did do a good representation of science or how, you know, biology is done? That's my question. Like, pop I don't think culture, there is how are a you lot of like, yeah, cell biologists are not well represented in pop culture as far as I can think of. Um, <laughs> like, I actually can't think of any. You know, like no Big Bang type equivalent oh, right. of like, oh, you know, <laughs> for like biologists. There's that movie Evolution that came out with David Duchovny. I haven't seen in it. 94. Yeah, it was a long time ago. Yeah. 96. 
there was when Jurassic Park came out. So we're talking like how I don't even know how long ago that was. There was some scene where they had a microscope that was made by a specific manufacturer and the scientists in the movie apparently are using it wrong. (laughs) Really? Yeah, and I think they had, there was some kind of a competition, I remember, to watch the movie and say exactly what they were doing wrong about it or what was kind of wrong. And my dad, who's a scientist, got really excited about seeing Jurassic Park for this very reason. Really? Yeah. He was like, it was an okay movie, but I found that scene. Yeah, exactly. Look at what they're doing with that microscope. And, you know, like, things like X-Files would show things like DNA, things, and, and they'd be, like, showing some, like, some kind of thing that would be really hard to interpret and they'd be like look at this and uh, you know like the sequence is wrong or something yeah. and, and I think that always is good for some laughs because right. you know you can't you know you're not really just looking at like you know an x-ray or something like right. that and, and saying something about the sequence Sorry. so well thank you I am I want to thank you for taking the time to come to this beautiful restaurant which it just suddenly got quiet here <laughs> But thank you for talking to me, and uh, hopefully I can talk to you again if this audio turns out to be crazy. (laughs) Okay, sounds like a great plan. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Spark Science. If you missed any of our show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com. If there's a science idea you're curious about, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at Spark Science Now. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE, Spark Radio, and Western Washington University. Our producer is Regina Barber DeGraff. Our audio engineers are Natalie Moore, Andrew Norton, and Tori Hiley. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet. Lead, gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc. When I wrap your thing, iodine, nitrate, activate. Red uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound. Balance with some balance, then you add a little talent in. Careful, careful with those ingredients. They could explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground.